I invite you to join me back in the Gospel of Mark, where we left off. We're in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. So appreciate again Justin and Mike helping us in our worship this morning. In fact, I was just listening to Justin's dad preach a sermon. I like to listen to sermons online throughout the week, and uh, Justin's dad preached as well in the state of Michigan, pastors there, and I hope to get him one day to preach here, because it was a good message I heard this week. Maybe I'll ask him to preach that one. Uh, but Mark chapter 6, by the way, if you want to Google your dad, you just look him up. You can find him on Sermon Audio, and I encourage you to do so. It's good to hear other men that are good expositors of the word as well, and it's nice to have his son leading us in worship today. Mark chapter 6, we'll beginning our reading in verse 6, we'll make our way to verse 13. We, we took a break from Mark chapter 6, and uh, we did so for our Christmas time together, and uh, we're back into it, and this will probably, going through verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, will take us a while, and uh, we'll be in it for much of, of 2023. We'll begin our reading at the end of verse 6 all the way through to verse 13. It says, and he went around, speaking of Jesus, about the villages, teaching, And he called unto him twelve, and began to send them forth two by two, and gave them power over unclean spirits, and commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, no scrip, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals, and not put on two coats. And he said unto them, In what place soever you enter into the house, there abide till you depart from that place. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear you when you depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable tolerable for for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. As you read those verses with me this morning, there is a clear message I trust that's hard to miss. God's work must be done God's way, according to God's will, as revealed in God's word, if it's ever to expect God's blessing. The truth of the matter is, it matters to God how his work is carried out. None of us are free to invent ministry and do it however we see fit or however we please. If it is truly God's work, then God has seen fit to show us from his word how to do it. During the days of the Reformation of the 16th century, there was something that came known as the formal principle. The formal principle was heralded by those Protestants of that time, and it said something like this, Scripture alone should form all that we believe and all that we do and how we do it. This is more often not known as the formal principle, but more often known as sola scriptura, or the scripture alone. We believe that the scripture alone we will follow, and the scripture directs us in how we believe, what we believe, and how we do God's work. This is also known as something else that led them to another conclusion. Not only the formal principle, but something they called the regulative principle. The regulative principle simply means the Word of God regulates the worship and work of God. And these principles of sola scriptura and regulative principle of worship affected two key aspects of the Christian life and thus encompassed all that those who call themselves Christians are to do on the earth. Number one, they obviously affected the worship of God. Everything, for example, in the public worship service of God's people on the Lord's Day must originate in Scripture, either by direct command or practical example. We must bring nothing to our worship services that we do not see recorded in Scripture. Certainly worship comes to play here. 
And the work of God, the work and ministry that we do for God, must be formed, regulated, and square with Scripture. God defines in His Word what we are to do, what we are to believe, and how we are to do it. Believers are to be people under then the authority of the Word of God. We are to, as I titled the message, stay on mission. In late 2009, Peggy Noonan, who published in the Wall Street Journal article, highlighted how so many trusted institutions seem to be failing or falling away all at the same time. Of course, this was in 2009. In this article, it mentions the federal government, the Wall Street, the Catholic Church, Congress, public schools, and journalism as formerly trusted institutions that now were falling away. I quote from the article, and it says, Maybe the most worrying trend of the past 10 years can be found in this phrase, they forgot their mission. So many great American institutions, institutions that everyday people help hold us together, acted as if they had forgotten their mission, forgotten what they were about, what their role and purpose was, and what they were really there to exist to do. The author concludes with this statement. If you work in a great institution... Do you remember your mission? Now let me turn that question around toward us today. If you have repented of your sins, turned to Christ for salvation, been born again, and been made part of a greater institution on earth than any other called the church, do you know your mission? Do you know? Have you embraced that mission? Are you being faithful to that mission? Again, it matters to God how his work and his ministry are carried out. We see something of this in, verse, in the verses we read of chapter 6 of Mark's gospel. We see Jesus not only commissioning his disciples, but we see Jesus also telling his disciples exactly what they are to do. It matters to the head of the church how he is represented and how he is served. This is what we find in Mark 6. And in this passage, we find Jesus summoning and sending his disciples. And in so doing, we discover Jesus also defining for them what their ministry would be like. This is what Jesus is establishing in his verses. And there are specifics that are the calling of Christ. And all of these specifics are pressed upon our hearts at the end of verse 6 all the way to verse 13. And, And the first of those specific is really modeled by Christ On the latter few of those specifics, we see are commanded by Christ. And as we consider them, we see Christ exhorting his disciples to, to first of all, know their mission, but certainly, secondly, to stay on mission. I must confess that I didn't just write stay on mission as the sermon because we're starting the new year, though I find it kind of appropriate that that's the title of our message in the text before us. But I find that often to be the case when you preach verse by verse through the Bible just by way of of a side here. Oftentimes when you go verse by verse to the Bible, you just find yourself on passages that are very appropriate for the time. And here we are at the beginning of the new year, and Christ is commissioning his disciples, and he's showing them what to do. I think that's pretty appropriate for the first Sunday of the new year. Only God could have directed so said. But God begins, Christ begins, we should specifically say, by modeling his mission. And if you're going to stay on mission, you must stay on mission by following Christ's priority. This first point is found in the second half of verse 6. Every ministry must be clear 
as to what its ultimate priority is, and that priority must be the Word of God to be spread out as far and wide as it possibly can. This is precisely what we see Jesus modeling in his own ministry all the way even now and even the previous chapters leading up to this one in Mark's Gospel. And he was going around the villages doing something. He was teaching. This is just a snapshot that reveals what would be the lifestyle of our Lord Jesus Christ. Literally, it says in this verse, he was going around the villages in a circle. The idea is one of an itinerant ministry that is constantly on the move. Jesus was not sitting back, passively waiting for people to come to him. Jesus was going to them. And he was teaching. And notice the emphasis upon the word teaching at the end of verse 6. This was the driving priority of his earthly ministry. Teaching means to inform the mind in order to shape the will, to change the life. That's the word, didasco, that's used here. The way you change someone's life is through their mind, not through their emotions, not through rule-keeping. A person's life is changed when truth first penetrates their mind. And that is why Jesus continually taught. Teaching here, by the way, is in the present tense, meaning he is going around the villages always teaching or continually teaching. This is a lifestyle of ministry for our Lord. He was the teaching messenger of God. He was teaching the message of the kingdom of heaven. He was teaching the gospel of the kingdom. He never stopped teaching. Never was there a more industrious teacher than the Lord Jesus Christ. If any one of us was tried to keep up with him during those days when he was on earth, we would have been plumb exhausted. He was doggedly, persistently, unwaveringly committed to going from village to village teaching the Word of God. God had one son, and he made him a teacher. And so we read this at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said unto him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said, Let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came. That's what I came to do. That is the point of the arrow, of the thrust of Jesus' ministry. Jesus came chiefly to proclaim the message of salvation far and wide. In verse 39, it says of Mark 1, And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. That's what he did. This is Jesus' teaching ministry. He was continually reaching people with the word of God. Matthew's gospel enlarges upon this when it says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, teaching, teaching, teaching. This was not a city or a village or a hamlet. This was all of Galilee. He was spreading himself thin, teaching the word of God. There have been isolated times in church history of extraordinary power when God's men have been thrust out into these kind of itinerant preaching ministries. There are a few of them, but they are always pretty amazing. In 1524, when Martin Luther was on his way to Worms to be there on trial, 
History tells us that in that year, he preached his way all through Germany, traveling to Worms. And when he finally stood at Worms, before the Diet of Worms, where you famously hear him say, I can do no other, it was simply the overflow of a preaching ministry that at that point had garnered the hearts and ears of thousands in Germany. And most will say the reason Worms was so profound was because everybody heard what he was going to say as he traveled there. In 1747 is another famous example. George Whitfield covered the colonies, all the colonies, in three to four months. More people knew George Whitfield visually at that time in history than George Washington because they had all seen him preaching up and down the Atlantic seacoast. It is estimated that in those three to four months, Whitfield stood before 80% of all the colonists at that time preaching the word of God. Then this is what we see the Lord Jesus doing. He is moving. He is teaching. This is the driving priority of his ministry. Jesus came to preach the gospel and reach the lost. It matters to Christ how his ministry is carried out. What does the church chiefly do? If we are to have a life in ministry that resembles the Lord Jesus Christ, we must be part of taking the word of God as far and wide as it possibly can. We must strive to bring the gospel to as many people as God can lead us to reach. We must bring the people to the word. We must bring the word to the people. And that is what Christ did. That is the point of the arrow of his ministry. That is the thrust, the drive of why Christ came to earth. He came to be a teacher. So staying on mission means having a priority about the teaching of the word of God. Number two, staying on mission means listening to Christ's command. Stay with me, and I want you to notice the divine commission now given in verse 9. We see now the answer to the prayer of Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus gathers his disciples around him, and he tells them a prayer request. Do you remember what it was? Pray earnestly to the Lord of a harvest that he may send laborers into his harvest. He says, there's all these fields, they're white unto harvest. Pray that God would send laborers. And now, in these verses, we see the answer to that prayer request. We see now the answer to the prayers that were offered are answered by those who were praying the prayer. Those who have prayed become the answer to their own prayer. They have been praying that God would send forth laborers. These are the very prayer warriors that God now commissions through Christ's words. Look what he says in verse 7. And he summoned the twelve. Now notice the word summoned. The twelve did not volunteer. None of the twelve initiated this. None of them signed up for this. It was the Lord who summoned the twelve. And it's an important word, the word summoned. It comes from a Greek word, pros, which, pros kaleo. The word pros is a prefix, which means face to face, and kaleo means to call. And these twelve, then, when Christ says he summoned them, they are called to come face to face before the one who issues the call in order to be sent out to carry his will. 
The word summoned means to call someone to oneself in order to confront them face to face. It would be like you receiving a summons from the court. If you get one of those today, you have to go. You didn't volunteer for it, I don't imagine, but you have to go. Jesus said this in John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. For what? That you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. These men were not consulted about their summons. Jesus is making far more than a casual request here. Jesus is asserting his will on their will. Jesus is making this demand by the sheer force of his will. This summons is a non-negotiable, obligatory, sovereign call. I want you to remind you that we have already heard Christ summon them twice already. In John chapter 1, we see this same group of 12 summoned to salvation. This is a summons to come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the effectual call of those 12. In the Gospel of Mark, we read Mark chapter 1. And again, in Matthew chapter 4, it repeats the same call. We read the summons unto training and equipping of the ministry. They are saved, but he now calls them to come and to follow him. But now, this is different. In Mark chapter 6, we have a third summons in the life of these twelve. He has summoned them once unto salvation. He has summoned them a second time unto the training and equipping ministry of the word. And he now summons them a third time into gospel ministry. And he summoned the twelve. This is a sovereign call of initiative. God draws them to himself for what purpose, verse 7, and began to give them authority. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He sovereignly now commissions them into the world, thrusts them from his side out into a lost and dying world. They become part of the extension of the preaching and teaching ministry of the word of Christ, Christ himself being their example. They now become direct extensions of Jesus' ministry. His voice becomes their voice. His mission, their mission. And they are now the ambassadors to go out on his behalf. And this is a noble, regal commission. They are Christ's ambassadors. And friend, we must pause here because there is no greater commission in all of life than to be so commissioned by the Lord. I want to say by way of application that all of us who have been summoned to salvation have likewise been summoned to service. They do go hand in hand. There is no such thing as a believer who does not have a grasp of the joy of being part of the service for the Lord that doesn't exist. Some will go overseas to the mission field. Some will pastor churches here. But in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who call themselves Christians are always and only extensions of Christ. To not be is to not be saved. Notice it says in verse 7, and he began to send them, and this is so important, two by two. How wise of the Lord. He knows about human nature. Jesus divides up the 12 disciples into six teams of two, 
And in this way, they would have mutual encouragement, they would have companionship. This is our Lord's antidote to loneliness, temptation, and discouragement in the ministry. Woe be it to us to prop up a minister to be a lone wolf. That wasn't Christ's model. Christ sent them out two by two. And it does matter to God how we stay on mission. And I know of many ministers who have been discouraged, or we use the word burnt out, because they were propped up on an island of their own. And they weren't looking seriously at how Christ commissions his servants. Number three, we stay on mission by pressing forward with urgency. The urgency of their mission is the sobering reality. The urgency of their mission required that they travel lightly, in order not to be encumbered. Nothing must slow them down. They are taking the gospel to lost people. And he charged them, verse 7, to take nothing for their journey. Now when Jesus says this, he is saying there must be no excess baggage here. This is not a luxurious cruise that you're going on, right? There are no extra provisions for comfort's sake. And by the way, this is not a vow of poverty. It has nothing to do with that whatsoever. This is everything to do with being shrewd and wise as if you are going on a trip for your master. Don't be tied down with extra luggage that might hinder your advancement of the gospel. There's a sense of dire urgency because time is of the essence. Life is short. Death is sure. Eternity is looming. Get moving is what he's saying. What we do for God, we must do it today. Do you sense that? Do you not feel that down in your heart and your soul that the world is passing by quickly? Time is evading us. You just thought it was 2022, and now you're going to spend the rest of the next six months remembering to put a three at the end of the number every time you sign the date, (laughs) only for it to quickly become 2024 as soon as you learn to say 2023. We must move swiftly to do God's work. But note the exception. Take nothing except... A staff. This is a traveler's stick or a walking stick. It would be used to support the weary traveler. It would be used even to fend off any dangerous forces that may come. This is a practical instrument. But it's a practical instrument with the understanding you're going to need a walking stick because you're walking. (laughs) But he says in verse 7, no bread, no bag, which is a knapsack filled with supplies for the road, no money in their belts. Their needs would be provided when they reach their final destination. Those to whom they minister must undertake the cause of supporting them. They must get to the mission field as fast as possible. It will be responsibility of those whom they are ministering to provide for them. After all, this is exactly what 1 Timothy 5, verse 18 says. The laborer is worthy of his wages. What is that a reference to? It's a reference to the laborer in this call. In fact, in Matthew's account of this, it records these very words. The worker is deserving of his support. Those who are one to the faith and have come into the kingdom of God will be part of the support of those men that are now walking with those walking sticks. Have we missed this with our mission as a church, by the way? Did you know that the average length of deputation in the United States for a missionary is five years? That's a tragedy. 
Did you know the average church supports a missionary for $100 a month? Who do we think we are to expect that they can report back to us? We aren't even supporting them, hardly. Did you know that most churches in America, when it comes to missionaries, have never given them a monthly raise? I bring this up because this sense of urgency should be picked up and shared by God's children. There are those who go and there are those who give that others may go. And this is our urgent mission. Far be it for us to have someone come to us that we have seen even raised from our midst as our church has been on our knees every Sunday praying for because for 40 years, as of yet, God has not had us had the privilege of sending out a missionary from this midst. But one day, Lord willing, that's going to happen, and I believe it will happen. And one day that'll happen, and it may be a young one that we have seen raised up, and they come, and they're on fire, and let's say they want to go to, I don't know, Timbuktu, I hope our church will be ready to say, get there right now, we'll take care of you and your family. That's exactly, the urgency there is for the disciples, but the urgency there is also for those of us who are sending those. Again, standing behind these verses are timeless principles that really govern the work of God. Not only is this message important to God, but so is his method and the means by which he carries out his ministry and his message. And he uses you and I Can you think about that? He uses us to send these. I'll never get to go to Timbuktu, but maybe I could be used to send someone there. I stay in mission by refusing then to be distracted. This is the dominant focus found in verse 10. Jesus said they would need to remain focused on their mission when they arrived. They should not be preoccupied with creature comforts, but with reaching people for God. Verse 10, it says unto them, wherever you enter a house. Now what's going on here is that they are thrust out from his side, and they're going from town to town, and they needed to find someone sympathetic to the gospel. And there are isolated people in houses in various cities where those people are friendly to the gospel and friendly to the gospel messengers. And whenever you enter a house, stay there, he's saying. Now stay, the word stay, is in the imperative mood. It's a divine command. The the word is used in John 15, verse 4, when it says, abide in me. It's the same word, stay in me and I in you. Why abide in a particular house? Why stay there? Well, number one, so as not to offend the original host, right? You're not going to just say, well, I liked the bed, but that one's better. Maybe that's a practical reason. But more specifically, you need to remain focused on their mission and not on your upgrade of your accommodation. It's time to move. It takes a while to pack things. But the focus and energies on these men need to remain on their ministry. They don't need to be diffusing what little energy or work they had on finding out where they can lay their head. As soon as you have a place, use that. Now, this is not a legalistic restriction. But what is found here is a timeless principle of wisdom. When you are there, you need to unpack, you set down tent pegs, you move out to do ministry, you're there. Not for your own comfort, you're there to preach. You're settled. What he's saying is, when you find your ministry, your square, your sphere, you minister there. For example, I I live in... Palm Bay. Some of you live in West Melbourne. Some of you lived in Melbourne. 
Where is your staying place? There. Right there. John MacArthur writes it this, this way. At this point, his sole focus, Jesus, referring to the focus of these disciples, should be on his ministry and his contentment on what he has and where he is staying will itself be a testimony to those to whom he ministers. It's not like he finally got to this one place and he's saying, you know, back in the other town, they took care of me better. It doesn't really matter. You're here. Or it's not like he finally got there and he's like, I can't wait to get to the next town. No, he, he, he cares about those that are right there. There must be a dominant focus in our lives as well. Granted, we are in different circumstances and at different ages, but nonetheless, it speaks to us principally, while we do not look at these things which are seen, but that the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Where's your home, friend? Man, sometimes I ask that, and I think, well, I I grew up in New England. You guys know that. I love New England. Uh, But that's not my home. My home is Palm Bay, Florida right now. That's where I'm planted. And I'm going to minister to those. And success in ministry is determined in part by the ability to look beyond what is perishing to what is imperishable. And there are two things that are going out and will be always with us in eternity. Two things that will always exist. You know what they are? The word of God and the souls of men. Everything else is going to burn. So I'm going to pour my life into the word of God and the souls of men. That's going to keep me on mission. And number five, I stay on mission by rejecting conflict. There is conflict that is involved in the reaching of the world for Christ. I wish this were not so. And yet there is inevitably about the the offensive message of the cross that I can't escape. There is an offensive nature to the gospel message, and you can't escape that. The message of the gospel is so provocative and powerful that it either ignites or divides. Jesus is the master teacher and equipper, must say this to his 12. Don't think by launching into this ministry for me that suddenly you're going to become the most popular person in town. There may be people who will name their babies after you, but more of them will name their dogs after you. And so Jesus says in verse 11 that we need to expect opposition. And when you face this opposition, you don't need to roll over and play dead and pretend like there is no such thing. There are times and there are places when we do what verse 11 says. And this speaks of conflict. There is a clash between light and darkness. There's a clash that occurs when the torch of truth invades darkness. And so we read in verse 11, any place that does not receive you or listen to you. That implies that wherever you go, you have something to say, by the way. You're actually talking. I hope you understand that that's a presupposition in that text. It presupposes that you are saying what verse 12 has to say. Look at verse 12. And they went out and preached that people are to repent. That's what they're preaching. And as you share the gospel of Jesus Christ, as a faithful soldier of the Lord does, you know that Jesus says about those who reject the message. He says, as you go out from there, if they reject, shake the dust off the soles of your feet as a testimony against them. 
Now those are serious words. You have a word of Christ that's in red. You might have thought, is that really Christ? And then you have to scratch your head and you think, well, that, that, nope, that's Christ. Christ just said that. Those are serious words. This is to say there, we only have so much time. There are only so many gospel witnesses that you can witness to left in you. There are only so many books left to give. You need to present the gospel clearly. And if someone does not receive it, there comes a time and a place when you shake the dust off your feet. My friend, if you're a good businessman, you understand the principles of investment and time. And you understand there's a time when pouring energies into the same broken system is a waste of time. Now, this is a symbolic but strong gesture, hardly ever if preached. Shake the dust off the soles of your feet as a testimony against them. That is saying the disciples have done their job, and those that have rejected the message would now have to answer to God for their rejection. That is saying this, because you have rejected the gospel, therefore I now move and preach the gospel in another place. This is a public declaration of divine displeasure that now rests upon those who refuse the gospel. Unless we think that this is an isolated command, let's remember this is precisely what Paul did on several occasions in his missionary journey. Paul would do this in Acts 13, verse 51. They shook off the dust of their feet against them and came unto Iconium. Paul did that. He did it again in another missionary journey in Acts 18. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Now pause. This is not a license for us to be unkind and ungracious. But there does come a time to play big boy football in the ministry. If God's word... And God's work is going to be done God's way, according to God's will, by God's word, then we too must take seriously the sin of unbelief in the lives of those we are trying to reach. What do you do with someone who consistently has heard the gospel message and rejects it, even rejects it powerfully? There comes a time when you recognize there are such things as rarely preached, like in 1 John, when there are sins unto death. And, and the passages in 1 Corinthians where those who take communion unworthily unto themselves are sick, and some do sleep in your body. Do I understand all the ramifications? What does this do for me? I'll tell you what this does for me in my ministry of proclamation and yours as well. It pours concrete into my shoes. It gives you staying power in the ministry. Because you, the gospel witness, do not save. And neither does the preacher. Only God saves. And if you can confidently say, I have, I have as best I can. And friend, be careful. Make sure you are sure that I need to not engage myself in constant debates with those who only want to debate for the sake of debate. And i got to tell you something as a former Wisconsin's top debater my senior year of high school. I love debate, but it's not always helpful, and it's also not always God's way. Number six, and finally, stay on mission by demanding a response. The message the disciples preached was a very demanding message. Notice verse 12. And they went out, and again, they preached. 
The word preached here is a word from which we get the idea of a town crier. They lifted up their voice. They herald the kingdom of heaven. They preached that men should repent. What does repentance mean? Repentance is the very heart of the gospel. You cannot say gospel without saying repentance. Literally, the Greek word means a change of mind. But in its various contexts, it's obvious that it means much more than the Sunday school answer, a change of mind. Repentance is a radical turning from sin with a broken heart. Repentance is a radical new lifestyle that manifests itself in the fruits of righteousness. To put it in simple terms, repentance means a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of will. That's a simple way to be reduced. A longer way, you could say, is repentance is a turning away from sin, as Stephen Lawson says, a turning away from sin, away from the world, with contrition and a confession of sin, turning to God and throwing oneself upon his saving mercy. I'd like to read a couple definitions from the Greek lexicon so that you may hear the definition of repentance lifted out of the dictionary. What is repentance? Metanoia means a change of one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. Though in English, the focal point of repentance is sorrow over sin, the emphasis of metanoia, Greek, seems to be more specifically on the total change, both in thought and behavior, with respect to how one should both act and think. End quote. Repentance means 180. It means you are once going towards the course of this world, but God, the great seeking Savior, drew us to himself, and by necessity we had to repent. God turned his heart to himself, and God saved us. We are now like salmon swimming upstream, whereas we used to be like every other dead fish going downstream. You don't just add Jesus to your life and continue going the same stream. The call of repentance and the gospel is a call to repent and change. You cannot say, I got my ticket out of hell, and then do nothing else, demonstrate no service heart, demonstrate no love for God, have never been in the word of God unless someone asks you to, never darken the door of the church, and literally have no other so-called fruits of repentance, and still have confidence you're saved. From God's word, I tell you, you aren't saved if that's your testimony. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You must come to the Savior on his terms. There's no fine print in the contract. It is so clear. You must change your life. It matters to God how his work is carried out. We're not free to carry out his ministry however we desire to do it. Not only is the message important to God, but so is the means. The method by which the message is carried out must be congruent with the message. In other words, trivializing the method tarnishes the message. Two are inseparably bound together. A clown in the pulpit tarnishes the character of God. A.W. Tozer wrote these words in 1955. 
He wrote them in 1955, but he might as well have written them as we started the year in 2023. Here's what he said. For centuries, the church stood solidly against every form of worldly entertainment, recognizing it for what it was, a device for wasting time, a refuge from disturbing voice of conscience, a scheme to divert attention from moral accountability. For this, she, or the church, got herself abused roundly by the sons of this world. But of late, she has been tired of the abuse and has given over the struggle. She appears to have decided that if she cannot conquer the great God entertainment, she may as well join forces with him and make what she can use of his powers. So today, we have astonishing spectacles of millions of dollars being poured into the unholy job of providing earthly entertainment for the so-called sons of heaven, and hardly a man dare raise his voice against it. Now, by today's standards, the issues that so inflamed Tozer's passions seem trifling. Now, Tozer, however, was not condemning games. He was not talking about movies. He was not talking about music styles. That's not at all what he was talking about. He was concerned with the philosophy underlying what was happening in the church. He was sounding an alarm, if you will, about a deadly change of focus. He saw evangelicals using entertainment tools, and in that outgrowth, he saw a sermon series, that was what he mostly was concerned about, built up with the latest ten ways to have a healthy marriage or six ways to be happy. And there was no longer any pulpits in his mind in 1955 that just took a book of the Bible and slowly but surely picked it apart verse by verse. Instead, it was always the next six-week sermon series on how to be a better person. And he continued to lecture and to push and to force, and he feared that frivolous diversions and carnal amusements from the pulpit in the church would eventually destroy people's appetites for real worship and the real preaching of the Word of God. And he was right. In fact, Tozer's rebuke is more fitting than ever. The incipient trend he identified has come into full bloom in our generation. What the church was flirting with 35 years ago has become its absolute obsession. What do we gather for? We gather for, as this series has been called, His Story. I don't want you to be a better version of you. I want you, from the Word of God, to be more like Christ. And what's remarkable in this text is that when Christ commissions these disciples, it's not as though they sat around with whatever version of uh, Starbucks they had in Jerusalem at that time, or for those that were more New England, probably Dunkin' Donuts, and talked about like how they can better reach people. He just said, here's the word, go give them the word. Friend, the word hasn't changed. If anything, we have more of it. Because at that point, some of these men would eventually become the authors of the very word we should be eating up. We have the foundations poured, and they're not cracking. They're firm. They're solid. They haven't moved. If anything, we've moved. And there are still many, because Christ still hasn't returned. And by the way, 
The sun rose up on 2023 because Christ still isn't done building his church. And someday Christ will come back and that will be the close of that time. But until that time, stay where you're at. Right where you're at. If God keeps you in Palm Bay, you plant in Palm Bay. God wishes you to carry that out, that message of repentance to those who still need it. You carry that out. If you've never truly repented, and I'm not asking if you know the gospel. I'm asking if you truly repented. Because, friend, as we saw already in the gospel of Mark, the devils knew the gospel. That was not up for question in their mind. They knew it probably better than most. But have you repented and come to Christ? Meaning, has it changed your life and your desires with it? That's staying on mission in 2023. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. May it always be our governing force. Lord, we have a powerful text before us, even as Christ begins to change and transition the, the flow of his ministry on earth as his disciples were at one point sitting at his feet, and now they become his feet and his voice as well. Lord, we have the privilege now of sitting at his feet, as it were, listening to his instructions to his disciples, but may we also understand that the call is for us to be his hands and feet. And that is the call, Lord, not just on a select few, but on any who would name the name of Christ. Lord, there may be some that just need to reflect in these moments of stillness on God's work in their lives, Lord, may we always recognize your word is more powerful than the whims of man.